Good morning. The reading today is from Samuel 1. There was a certain man of Ramathizopin of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jerome, the son of Elau, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, and Ephrodite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved, loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went out year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I no more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat besides the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but I will give to your servant a son. Then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Pour your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out about my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went away and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house in Ramah. And Elkanah knew that Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. 
for, she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man, Elkanah, and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, as soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she had weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her along with a three-year-old bull. And Ephah of flour, a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. And they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. What she said, O oh my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. Well, the subject, the main character of this story is dealing with an issue that many couples, even in our country, face. About one in eight couples, about 12% of married couples, uh, have trouble uh, having a pregnancy or maintaining that pregnancy. And infertility can be something that's extremely painful, especially for women. There was one study done of 200 couples that were seen consecutively at a fertility clinic and they found that 50% of women and 15% of men said that that experience of infertility was the worst experience of their entire lives. Another study of 488 American women who filled out a standard psychological questionnaire before undergoing a stress reduction program concluded that the women with infertility felt as anxious and depressed as people who were diagnosed with cancer, hypertension, or recovering from a heart attack. Half of women say that infertility is the worst experience of their lives. Anxiety, depression levels at the same rate as cancer. And that's 2020 in America. And you think about Hannah's situation of dealing with this infertility, and her situation was 100 times worse than what couples experience today. There's four reasons that it was worse. The first factor was in our society, women have many opportunities that, that women didn't have in the ancient world. In, in, in today's culture, uh, women ha can have careers, and having a child is kind of something that's an optional part of life. But in that culture, it was far different. In that culture, women's primary role was seen as caring for children, and if she wasn't able to do that, she probably felt worthless, like she couldn't contribute anything to society. So that's the first factor. Second is that we know a lot more about fertility today than, we did, than they did back then. We know today about a third of infertility is caused by the man, about a third is caused by the woman, and about a third is uh, nobody really knows. But in that culture, and especially in Hannah's situation, the blame would have been placed squarely on her, especially given the fact that uh, her husband Elkanah had children but with another woman. And so the blame would have 
been placed on her, that there was something wrong with her, and some people even believed that a person who was barren, a woman who was barren, was cursed of God. And so she would have probably felt an incredible weight of blame, guilt, anxiety. Which leads us to the third factor. She had a rival wife. Elkanah had two wives, Peninnah and Hannah. And the text tells us that every time that the family went up to the house of the Lord at Shiloh to worship, Peninnah kept harassing Hannah. We don't know exactly why she was harassing Hannah or what the content of that was, but there may have been a spiritual component to it given the fact that it happened when they were going up to the temple. Perhaps Peninnah said, if God really loved you, would he withhold the child from you? Perhaps she said, I'm a favored one of God because God has allowed me to have children and you are not allowed to have children. And some people, just as an aside, sometimes people look at the scriptures and say, well, the ancient patriarchs, they had multiple wives. So that means that God is okay with things like that or polyamory or things like that. And we look at this story and just because characters do something and it's recorded doesn't mean that it's right. And we look at these stories and almost every time that there's a story of someone having multiple wives, it turns out like this. There's dysfunction. There's disorder because it's not the way that God created it to be. So that's the third factor. He, she had a rival wife. And the fourth is that she didn't really have many options. Today, in our culture, if someone is struggling with infertility, there's different treatments that they can uh, have to uh, perhaps make that happen. And there's different options that are available. And of course, if nothing else works, there's adoption. In that culture, there wasn't much option. There wasn't adoption quite like we have it today. And so there wasn't a good option for her if she wasn't able to have children. But there's another feature of the story that I think couples who may have struggled with infertility could understand, and that's the question that Hannah may have been asking herself, and that question may have been, why me? Why me? What have I done wrong that this other woman is having children, but I'm not able to have children. You see, this story is in the context, it's written between the time of the judges and the time when the kingdom of Israel was established. And we see in the scripture in the book of Judges that at, towards the end of the period of the judges, right before the time when this is written, or when this event happens, we see that the, the, the tone of the nation has turned very dark. Judges 21, 25 says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so in the midst of this darkness, we see a family who is relatively devout, who loves the Lord. We know that they're imperfect, as this story illustrates, but they're relatively devout. They go up to the temple each year. They sacrifice. They worship. We also know that Elkanah loves Hannah deeply. It's exemplified by the fact that he gives her a double portion of the sacrificial meat when they go up to the temple. And so they love God, they love each other, and yet still, for some reason, the text tells us God had closed Hannah's womb. We don't know why. There's no indication that she did anything wrong that would cause God to withhold a child from her, but for whatever reason he has. And the same is true for some couples today who may struggle with infertility. They love Jesus. They love each other. 
but for some reason they can't have children. And the result of all these things is that Hannah is very, very depressed. She's in a deep and dark depression. The text tells us she wept and she would not eat. This also has an effect on her husband and seems to make him feel even a little insecure. He says to her again in verse 8, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Translation of that, Hannah, am I not enough for you? This insecurity has flooded the entire family. And the only thing that Hannah can do is she can pour out her soul to God in prayer. And she does. The text tells us she is deeply distressed. She prayed to the Lord, wept bitterly. And she pours out her soul to God and she makes a vow to God that if God would give her a child, then she would give that child back to the Lord. Now as she's praying, again she's weeping, she may be flailing about, and she's praying silently. And meanwhile, Eli, the priest, is there and he observes her praying, weeping, maybe flailing about. And he thinks she's drunk. In that culture, people didn't usually pray silently. That came much later. And there was also some suspicion about people who were praying silently. There was this idea, so if someone's praying silently, why are they, what are they trying to hide? Are they trying to kind of make a, give this spell or something that nobody else can hear? And so there was suspicion on someone who prayed silently. But we know that Hannah... She's praying sincerely to God, and she probably prays silently because the emotions are so raw and the struggle is so real that she doesn't want anyone else to know about that. And we know that Eli says to her, give up your drunkenness, basically. And she says, I'm not drunk. I'm a woman dealing with deep anxiety and vexation. Doesn't tell Eli exactly what's happening exactly what the nature of her struggle was. But she says, I'm a woman deeply in distress. And then the priest says to her, go in peace, and the God of Israel grant the petition that you've made to him. The text tells us that Hannah leaves, she breaks her fast, and as she leaves, her face is no longer sad. Then the next morning, she gets up with her family, and the family goes to the house of the Lord, and they worship together. She knows that God has heard her and that God will answer her. Then she and her husband go home. They do some baby making, which, we, which what it means when it says he knew his wife. And they have a baby. They conceive, have a, have a child. God answers her prayer. And you would think at this point she would try to hold on to that child as deeply and as tightly as she could because she had wanted the child for so long. And yet as soon as the child was weaned, she brought it to the temple, brought Samuel to the temple, and he served in the house of the Lord. But she was overjoyed because God had heard her. God had answered her prayer. And we see that God also gave her five other children after this. Surely God heard her. Now when we look at this story, I think this story operates on two different levels. There's kind of the personal, practical application level, and then there's kind of a bigger story. There's a story of Hannah and Elkanah, and the way that Hannah responds to this issue kind of shows us how we can respond to disappointment, how we can respond when our biggest dreams seem to be shattered, how we can walk in faith through this. 
And I think this passage shows us on that level that sometimes we need to wrestle with God. Sometimes we need to pour out our hearts to Him. Sometimes there's some issues that are so hurtful and so deep that nobody else really understands what we're going through. For some, maybe, who are listening or here, maybe that struggle is or was infertility. And maybe even your spouse doesn't understand what's that, what that's like. For some, maybe it's cancer. For maybe some, it's the death of a spouse. And you have well-meaning friends that say, oh, just, just move on. Time will heal all wounds. But they don't have any idea what you're experiencing. They don't know the depth of the pain that you have. Maybe it's a struggle with depression. And people, well-meaning people tell you, you don't have anything to be sad about. Just be happy. You have so many things to be thankful for. How could you be depressed? And yet still you have this weight of sadness, this weight of depression. Maybe it's a broken relationship. People tell you, just move on from it. But that rejection that you felt just sits with you. And that sting is just like it happened yesterday. And sometimes in those moments, we need to just pour our hearts out to God. We need to wrestle with Him. And we see that Hannah comes to a place in her life where she says, God, if you give me this, I'll give it right back to you. She's in such a place of desperation that she's like, God, I need you to do something. Either give this to me or help me deal with this pain. And sometimes we get to that point in our life where the pain is so real that we're like, God, you got to do something. You got to either answer the prayer or help me to endure this. And sometimes he answers the prayer and sometimes he helps us endure it. But it all starts with giving him ownership, saying, God, this life that I have, it's yours. And this pain is real, and I need something from you. I don't even know exactly what I need, but I need you to intervene in my life. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Weight of Glory, said this, He cannot bless us unless he has us. And when we try to keep within us an area that is our own, we try to keep an area of death. Therefore, in love, he claims all. There's no bargaining with him. So sometimes we need to pour out our hearts to God. We need to surrender to him, acknowledging that everything that we are belongs to him and invite him to act in our lives. So that's the personal, practical message. As we look at the story of Hannah and we can exhibit her, examine her faith. But I think there's something deeper going on here. The story that's told in 1 Samuel is not just a cute story about a little family who struggled, had this struggle. There's something much deeper going on. This story is the, plan, the story of God accomplishing his purposes through Hannah. I mean, from Hannah's perspective, she was just struggling with infertility. She just had this, this desire to have a child, but God was doing something much deeper. When God answered her prayer, little did she know this Samuel he was going to become the one who was the mouthpiece of God, the prophet of God, who spoke on behalf of God to the people of Israel. He was the one who was going to inaugurate the kingdom of Israel. He's the one who was going to anoint Saul, who was going to anoint David, the one whose throne will have no end. And so he had this special purpose, but from Hannah's perspective, it was just kind of this little family struggle, but God had a deeper purpose. And oftentimes God works like that. 
I mean, you think about Abraham. And Abraham was told to leave his homeland and go to a land that he didn't know where he was going. And he goes with Sarah, and they go to this new land. And to, to him, he probably doesn't understand the gravity of what's going to happen. He's promised he's going to become a great nation. He's going to have a homeland. But little does he know that through his line, this Messiah would one day come. That God would work his redemption through him. You think of the story of Mary and Joseph. The angel comes to Mary and says, you're going to have a child. She knew it was going to be a special child, but she's just dealing with the ramifications of what does this look like? What is Joseph going to think? How am I going to provide for this child? How am I going to endure this uh, journey to Bethlehem? And she views it as a family struggle. And God often works like that. He works through families because families, faithful families, fuel God's mission. Faithful families fuel God's mission. We see this in a number of places in Scripture. Scholar David Firth puts it this way. We're reminded that the small stories of faithful families are themselves woven into the greater purposes of God for his people. The astonishing affirmation here is that the kingdom of Israel does not begin with the request for a king. It begins with Yahweh's response to the cry of a childless woman. Because Yahweh, or God, gives life and Yahweh exalts. God's mission doesn't start with mighty men of valor forming a kingdom. It starts with a childless barren woman who, according to society's standards, would have been cursed by God, who was powerless, who had no other recourse, who was pouring out her soul to God. That's how the kingdom of Israel started. God's mission didn't start with Jesus hanging on the cross, or it didn't, it didn't start with Jesus hanging on the cross. It starts with a young man and a very young woman holding a baby and putting him in a manger, figuring out how to raise the Son of God. God chooses to work through families. Faithful families fuel God's mission. And what this means is the little things that we do as families can have very deep and significant and lasting impacts. For those who have children, especially fathers, we have a responsibility to teach our children the things of the Lord. It's not the church's responsibility. It's not the school's responsibility. It's not even mom's responsibility. It's our responsibility. And sometimes I know there are situations where other people have to fill in, but if we're men here, we need to take that responsibility to teach our children the things of the Lord. And when we're faithful as parents, moms, and dads, teaching our children those things, who knows what lasting impact that could have. I mean, we're just doing our part. We're just being faithful to our families, and yet maybe God is weaving a different story through that. Maybe God is doing something bigger than we even see. Some of us, maybe we don't have children, or maybe our children have grown up. That was Elkanah and Hannah didn't have children at this point together. And yet God was working through them. For those who don't have children, whose children grown up, God wants to work through you as a couple. He wants you to be united as a couple. He wants to show the world his love through you as a demonstration of God's love for the church. God wants you to be prayer warriors together. He wants you to serve together. He wants you to be a unified team to reach others for the gospel. Some of us, maybe we're here and say, I, I'm single. 
I don't have a family. I don't have a wife. I don't have any children. But that's not true. If you're a believer, you do have a family. Paul tells us in Ephesians that we're all part of the household of God. Jesus says that those who do the will of God are his brothers or sisters. In the scriptures, we see numerous places where believers are referred to as brothers or sisters. Leo Eklov writes this, The families we grew up in, whether exemplary or heartbreaking, or somewhere in between, are not our first family. When we're born again, we're born into a new family, utterly unique in this world, and the only family enduring forever in the next. We're children of the Heavenly Father, brothers and sisters in Christ. That makes them our first family. So while you may be single, you have a spiritual family. And whether you're single or married, how we conduct ourselves inside the family of God, it matters. It makes a difference. The little things of how we treat one another, how we speak to one another, how we speak of one another, these things make a difference. And for those who are single, you have an added opportunity to invest in the family of God. You don't have the responsibilities that come along with being involved in a nuclear family so you can invest in the family of God even more than those who have those responsibilities. 1 Corinthians 7 says this, I want you to be free from anxieties, Paul says. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. The unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. We're all part of a family, and family life is important, and families that are faithful fuel God's mission. Jim Peterson tells a story of a man named Mario who was from South America. And he had studied the Bible with Mario for an extended period of time. And Mario was not a believer when they first met. He was a Marxist intellectual. He read a number of philosophers, really brilliant guy, but was opposed to Christianity and the gospel. And Jim Peterson spent a number of uh, nights or days and nights with him, investing in him, teaching him the Bible, uh, having these philosophical uh, conversations. And then after some time, he came to know the Lord. Then after, two years after he came to the Lord, Jim and Mario were just kind of reminiscing, and Mario says, do you know what made me come become a Christian? And Peterson thought about all the Bible studies and all the philosophical discussions that they had. But Mario's reply took him by surprise. Mario said this. He said, remember that first time I stopped by your house? We were on our way someplace together. And I had a bowl of soup with you and your family. As I sat there observing you, your wife and your children, and how you related to each other, I asked myself, when will I have a relationship like this with my fiancé? When I realized the answer was never, I concluded I had to become a Christian for the sake of my own survival. Peterson did remember that occasion. He remembered the children behaving badly, and he was embarrassed because he had to correct them in front of Mario. But Mario saw the love and the grace that held that relationship together. Church, a new year is upon us. We're in 2020. And as we start this year, we're going to do a number of different outreaches like we've done in the past. We're going to do uh, Church in the Park. We're going to do Easter egg, Easter egg hunt. We're going to do movie nights. Things to reach out to the people in our community. 
And while those things are good, especially these events that, you know, we have lots of families come in, one of the things I think that, would, that will keep them, that will keep them coming back, that will make them want to know God more, is if they feel or get a taste of what it's like to be a part of a family. Because that's what we are. We're a family. And so if they come and just have an event and then just leave, that's great. Hopefully they'll hear the gospel and be saved, planting seeds. But we want them to taste what it's like to be a part of a family. So as we start 2020, let's resolve to be faithful in our families, starting first at our nuclear families. Those who have children, let's lead our families in reading God's Word and praying together. Let's speak with love and grace to one another. For those who are couples, let's resolve to pray with our spouses. Those who are single, let's resolve to use the freedom that we have to invest in the family of God. As a church, as a body of Christ, as a family, let's resolve to love God more deeply in 2020. Let's resolve to love other people more sincerely. Because if we're faithful, it fuels God's mission. Because faithful families fuel His mission. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you choose to work through us, our ordinary families. And while the things that we're facing may seem small or trivial or insignificant to us, we know that often through those things, you're weaving a bigger story. We know that as we're faithful in our families, whether that's our biological families or our church families, that it fuels your mission and draws people to your love and to your grace. Lord, I pray that in this new year that we would be faithful, that our families' structures will be strong, that fathers will lead their families in worship, that couples would pray together, that families would be unified, that singles would be involved in the family of God deeply. And Lord, as a church family, I pray that we would be sincere with one another, that we'd be authentic, that we'd be real, and that we'd love one another with the love that you've loved us. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.